Let's open your Bibles to the, to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 22 this morning. Matthew 22 is our text. So as you have your way there, I'm going to start by asking you a question. And the purpose of this question is not that you would answer out loud, uh, but that you would be thinking, that you would be thorough in your, that you would be introspected, that you would examine your soul as we approach his word, that this question would allow you to be a little bit deeper in the way you think about the state of your soul and your position before God. Perhaps you never thought about this, but the question is this. What do you think is the worst sin that you've ever committed? What would you say if someone would ask you, what is the worst sin you've ever committed? Obviously, don't say it out loud, that's not the point, but that you would really think deeply about what would be the worst transgression that you have committed against God? What would that be? You know, and some of us are thinking, well, we need a little bit of a measuring rod, right? Like, how do we know, right? Which sin is worse than which? All sins are damnable. All sins are judged and will be judged by God. And so, how do we know that? Well, in a sense, it's true, right? All sins are sins, transgressions against God. But we also know in Scripture that there are certain things that God purposely underlines, right? There are certain things that God really hates. I mean, for example, in Proverbs chapter 6, you guys are familiar with this, but Solomon tells us that God hates seven things, right? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and so on, right? So there are certain things that are a little bit worse than others because God points out to those things as things that he really hates. I mean, if you're familiar in the book of James, right, chapter three, we see that teachers will incur a greater judgment. So yes, all sins are all the same, but there, is some, there are some sins out there that are a little bit more serious, we might say. So the question is, Relevant, which one would be the worst sin of all? How do we know which is the greatest of all? You know, and some of us are thinking, you know, maybe murder, or it could be lust, adultery. Maybe the more spiritual are thinking pride, unbelief. But the bar is much higher than that. The standard is much higher than that. And our text today will answer this very question and more. As I said, we are in Matthew 22, and we're going to see verses 34 through 40. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But before we even read it, I need to warn you. And I need to warn you because uh, this is a very familiar text. You should already know what we're going to talk about. Uh, All of us know the content of this passage. And so the warning comes because on one hand, that is a really good thing. We all should be familiar with the teaching of this text. This should be at the forefront of our minds. We should already know, okay, okay, that's where we're going. But on the other hand, familiarity breeds what? Contempt, right? And so we are so, uh, we are on the verge of that. And we can become very superficial. And so we might be tempted to see this text and be like, okay, well, well, I know what it's going to be about. I know what the text is about. I'm going to move on. or I'm going to start thinking about lunch or thinking about where I'm going to sit the next service so I'm not ending up on those uncomfortable chairs and and all of that, right? No, no. So the point of, of our time today is that we would be really introspected in the way we think about the state of our soul. As we see Matthew 22, 
verses 34 through 40, here Matthew uh, points out another, uh, another, uh, another scene in the life of Jesus. We see that here, he points out a test of his. And because of the peril account in Mark 12, we know that this is actually his final test. After this, he will be arrested, crucified, and will die. And so, as we come to this final test in his life, we see that this passage points out, it squeezes out of the mind of God, of the divine, the most precious truth, the one thing that is dearest to God, the one thing that we should all be very careful and considerate. And so, this passage, by default, should lead any one of us here to Christ, any one of us. It doesn't matter who we are. If you're a Christian, this text, as you see the standard, as you see God's standard, should lead you to Christ for rest. Should lead you to Christ for, with a heart of appreciation and thankfulness for his work on the cross on your behalf. And if you're not a Christian, instead, if you haven't grabbed a hold of Christ, if you haven't trusted in him, then this passage should lead you to Christ anyway out of desperation for salvation. Let's read the text before we proceed, but let's keep in mind, what is God going to tell us today? Okay, Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. So it reads the word of God. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And so as we think about this text, we're going to divide it in two parts, okay? This is one scene. We're going to have two parts. The first one is a challenging question. We see that the Pharisees are coming to Christ and they're asking this challenging question. And the second one, from verses 37 through 40, we're going to see Jesus respond. We're going to see a convicting response, okay? We're going to start with verse 34 through 36, a challenging question, and then we're going to move to the convicting response of the Lord, The text starts like this, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And so this presupposes the fact that there is a context, right? This passage didn't come out of the blue. There is something, it's, it's in the middle of a story. And what happened beforehand? Now we know in the book of Matthew, that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the, 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 the Sadducees, the Herodians, they, they've been watching Jesus. They've wanted to kill him since the very beginning. Since he started his public ministry, when people started looking for him, people started going after him and considering him the Messiah, they wanted to hunt him down. They wanted to kill him. And so the previous chapter, in chapter 21, we see that Jesus enters Jerusalem in the verse, verse 1 and, and on until verse 11. We see the famous triumphal entry, right? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's been, a, he's been welcomed as the coming Messiah. And he is the one that they were waiting for. Everyone was hoping that he would deliver Israel from the pagan nations. 
And so all the crowds are surrounding him and everyone is celebrating. And so this was really, really painful for them. They wanted the attention of the people, right? But Jesus doesn't just do that. To enhance their hatred, (laughs) he goes straight to the temple. Now this is Passover week. We're at the end of Jesus' life. And he goes into the temple, the most lucrative place in the world at that time, where there were hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, Some scholars would even say that even up to two million people were gathering in Jerusalem. And so he goes straight to the temple and he cleanses the temple. All of these people are coming to Jerusalem. They're gonna spend money. They're gonna try to find a way to offer their sacrifices to please God. And they were just abusing them. And so they were all upset because Jesus goes to the temple and kicks everyone out and cleanses it. But he doesn't just do that. He pronounces three parables of condemnation against the religious leaders. And if you remember, in verse 28 to 32, we see the parables of the, the two sons, right? He calls them and he addresses, basically he, he, he pronounces this indictment against the religious leaders and he, and he compares them to self-righteous children, right? That they are very clean on the outside, but really in their hearts, they hate God. And then in verse 31, he says this, even tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God before you. So he's directly pointing the finger to them. And then the second parable verses 33 to 46, we see that he compares them to selfish tenant farmers, right? Do you remember that parable that you have the the landowner that leases the land to them and they're working of their labor, but instead of paying it, what do they do? They kill every servant that the landowner sends and they even kill the son. And so he tells them that the kingdom of God will be taken away from them. And then there is a third one. In chapter 22, he compares them to selfish guests. You remember uh, that there is the parable of the king that invites them to the wedding feast and they, for several reasons, whatever the reasons were, don't go. And so he tells them that they are outside of the kingdom of God. And interestingly enough, in chapter 21, in verse 43, it says that, in verse 45, sorry, it says that they understood that he was talking about them. So they totally hated him now, right? Because he not only has screwed up all of their plans to make money during the Passover week, which was the the most lucrative time, right? But he's also calling them out in front of their people, according to their judgment, right? And so what do they do is that they respond to all of these attacks from Christ with three tests, three tests. The first ones are by the Pharisees and the Herodians. Do you remember? They asked him a question, the question about taxes. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? And they were hoping that Jesus' answer would either stir the crowd because he would say uh, yes, and so he would go against the Jews, or that maybe if he would say no, that the Herodians would have reported him to Rome, and that would have been the end of his ministry. But Jesus puts them to silence. And then, we see that the Sadducees come up in verse 23. And they ask that strange question about the woman that was married, lawfully married to seven men, and then she dies, and they ask him, who wish she'll be married in the resurrection? And he puts them to silence. And in verse 29, he says this, you are mistaken, not understanding the scripture, nor the power of God. And so this leads to our text. Verse 33 says this, But when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. You see, he had the the eyes of the people. 
And so here now, they are figuring out, what are we gonna do? And so they attack with a third test. And in verse 34, our text said this. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, well, they gathered themselves together. Now, they were, the, the, the loss of the Sadducees was bittersweet, right? Because they were not totally in agreement with them. They didn't like them that much, but they liked Jesus less. So that was not good. And so they get together, they got it. This is kind of like in a, in a soccer game when they, the, halfway through the, through the game, the, the, well, maybe like a baseball game or a football game. Like they come together, the team comes together and they are like strategizing, right? We're losing, what should we do? What should be our next attack? How can we fool him? They come themselves, they come together, they gather together and verse 35 says this. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. Now a lawyer obviously is not a political lawyer. It's, it's, he was an expert in the law. And if you read in Mark 12, the parallel passage, Mark tells us that he was a scribe. So he was an expert in the law of God. And so he was a little bit of a step ahead of everyone else. And he comes and he asks a question. And this is interesting because the purpose of the question, Matthew tells us that he did that to test him. But the nature of the test is significant because if you read in Mark 12, it seems that there is a little bit more of a genuine spirit behind this question. In Mark 12, 28, Mark tells us that he heard them arguing and recognizing that he had spoken well, he asked the question. So we might say that this man was a little bit acknowledging that Jesus was not all off, that there was something right about him. And in Mark, after Jesus answers the question, the Pharisees, the lawyer, the scribe, responds by repeating the answer, acknowledging that he was right, and Jesus tells him that he is not far from the kingdom. So we, we don't, it, it seems that there is a little bit of a genuine spirit behind the testing, but it's still, it's still a testing, right? He was testing him. And so what's the point of this test? And look at what he says, verse 36. Teacher, perhaps to call out a little bit of his pride, you know, trying to see if he if he would lose his temper. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, this was a very challenging question for them because the, the, the religious leaders had come up with this very complex system to try to understand the law and how they could selfishly and self-righteously be the, the holier, uh, the, the, the people that were a little bit ab- above everyone else. And so they had gone back to the Ten Commandments and they had counted every single letter in the Hebrew, and as they're, they're counting the letter, they come up with, some of them come up with 613, some of them come up with 620, depending on vowels counting and all of that. But then what did they do? In order to, perhaps out of a good spirit, we might say, but in order to protect those, those 10 commandments, they have gone through the whole Torah, through Genesis, through Deuteronomy, and they have counted and they have underlined different commandments that Moses have brought up through his book. And they've come up with 248 positive commands, meaning you shall do this, you shall do that, and 365 that were negative. So it was a very complex system. Those that have come up with 620 instead of 613, they have made up seven more commandments uh, that basically were the rabbinic commandments. 
They were saying, yeah, there is 613 commandments, but there's these seven more that Moses have given us the authority to decide, and they're mainly celebratory, like celebrate the Purim or little things like that related to religious celebrations. But either way, they've come up with all of this complex system, and so the point, the question has, has a sense, right? Because obviously they knew they couldn't keep all of them. And so they have divided them. Okay, which one are the ones that we really have to keep, right? And which one are the ones that are a little lighter? And so this question was an actual conversation that those people were having. Which one is the number one? If we would have to write them all down, which one would be number one, right? And so as they're going through all of this, perhaps the heart of the testing is, you know, if you're the Messiah, if you really are who you say you are, what? You're going to know it. You know what the answer is. And then on the other end, the, most, the more sinister motive might be that, you know, they had a standard, right? Who, who was the standard? The standard was Moses, right? Who wrote the law? Moses. And so they were convinced that Jesus was not one of them. They were convinced that Jesus was an enemy of Moses, And so they were saying, well, if he comes up with something that is different than Moses, then we got him. The people will know that he is not the prophesied prophet of Deuteronomy 18, right? The people will know that he is not the man. And so you see, it's a challenging question, but look at the answer. Now we go to part two, the convicting response of the Lord. And here is where we're going to going to settle. We're going we're gonna to trace some implication out of Jesus' words for all of us now that we've seen a little bit of the context and, and the, the heart behind this question. Jesus answers in this way. Verse 37. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophet. Prophets. Perfect response, right? This is the perfect response. He couldn't come up with anything better. Well, first of all, because it's true. But second, because think about it. He went back to Moses himself. If you, if you can recall, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in Deuteronomy, Moses is with the new generation of Israel. They are about to approach the, the promised land, and he is reminding them, hey, look at what happened to your parents. Look at what happened to the people that come before you. You should not do the same. And so he re- repeat the whole law. And in chapter 5, it goes again through all of the commandments. And then we get to chapter 6. And in Deuteronomy 6.1, we read these words. Now, this is the commandment the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it. And then in verse 4, we read these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And here we see a statement about God's simplicity and the nature of God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and so on, right? So Jesus goes back to that statement. The Lord is one and you shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so we're going to split this answer in two, just like Jesus does. We're going to see, number one, 
Love God. The first sub-point. A convictive response, the first one is, you must love God. And the second one is, you must love your neighbor. But we're going to see it later in verses 39 through 40. So first of all, love God. The passage says this, you shall love the Lord your God. You all know this, right? The word love here is the word agape and implies the love of the will. This is the love of sacrifice. I mean, there are some feelings and affections included in it, but, but it's really the love of the will. This is the kind of love that when you got married, you vowed to your wife or to your husband, right? You vowed and you promised to love them. You made a covenant. Now, that covenant, though you had feelings and emotions, was not really based on those, right? Because those change. So it's the same kind of love. You've, you've decided to set your love upon him or her, that's the kind of love. Jesus is saying, with that kind of love, with that kind of self-sacrificial love, you must love God. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, Moses wrote this. The Lord, Yahweh, did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And so why did the Lord choose us? Verse 8. Because the Lord loved you, right? That's the point. He loved you. He chose to love you, and he loved you. In Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. You see, even when there were no reasons, he still loved us. That's the kind of love that Christ here is commanding that we would obey and that we would abide with. And so even before we proceed, right, even before we move forward to how is it that we must love, there are some implications even right here for us, right? You see, here is an unconditional kind of commandment. We must love God. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how you woke up in the morning. You had a rough night. Your baby didn't allow you to sleep or whatever. You had a hard day at work. You see, friends, you must love God. It's an absolute but then the question is obvious, right? How? How should we love God? This passage brings before us God's standard. This is what God requires from all of us. And the reason why we need to be very careful when we read passages like this is because sooner than later, you will be before God and you will be called to give an account for what you have done with this truth. Look at what he says. He gives us three ways of how we should love God, the kind of love that we should have towards God. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Number one, with all your heart. Now in the Old Testament, you know it very well, the heart is the center of who you are. It's the true you, right? It's the essence of who you are. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it, what? Flow the springs of life. You see, the heart is you. First Samuel, 6, First Samuel 16, 7. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? At the heart. In the New Testament, it's the same story. The heart, it really, it really is the root of everything you do. It really is the motivation, the one that, that motivates anything you do, you say, or you think. Luke 16, 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of man, but God knows your hearts. 
Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, look at this, not as pleasing man, but God who examines our hearts. You see, it's the true motivation. And so what does it mean? Is God, the love of God, at the center of all you do? Is God the reason that motivates everything you do, say, or think? Are you living with a continual, perpetual sense of God? Because you see, here you're presented before the law, right? And the law is requiring this from you. Nothing less is God always at the forefront of your mind. The motivation is always with you. I mean, it's like when you're going somewhere and you love someone so much and you're at the store and you see something, oh, she, she would really like that. Or maybe you're traveling somewhere, oh, he would really like to see that. That's what we're talking about here. Is God at the very center of your motivations? Are you always thinking, would this be pleasing to my Lord? That's what it means to love God with all your heart, with the very center of who you are. But it doesn't end there. The bar is higher. It says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, this could be interchangeable. Heart, soul, uh, it, it's, but, but if we want to split hair, right, if we want to split hairs here, uh, we might say that if, if the heart speaks of the willful motivation of your heart, if the, 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 the one factor that determines why you do it, why you do what you do, the, the soul might be the place of affections. So we must love God with all of our affections. Psalm 42, one says this, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 63, one to three says this, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. You see, it goes beyond the motivation. It goes beyond the, the sacrifice. It goes beyond the, the dry uh, kind of, I'm gonna do it because that's the right thing to do. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's an affection. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Verse two says this, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life and my lips will praise you. See, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul is to love the Lord your God with all your motivations and with all your affections. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition whether at home or absent, to do what? To be pleasing to him. That's what it means to love God with all our soul. A constant, conscious understanding that God is watching and that you want to be pleasing to him. But then he continues. Not only to love the Lord your God with all your heart or with all your soul, but what does he say? With all your mind. This is interesting because this word, actually, mind, is not, in the Greek, is not the common word for mind. It's, it's a different word. And we might say that it perhaps speaks more of understanding, uh, of uh, the, the mental endeavor, of, of thinking. And it becomes even more interesting when you look in Deuteronomy because Moses used the Hebrew word for might. In fact, if you have an NASB, it translates with that, with all your might. 
That word is used, it's translated with very, with much, with force, with strength. So it implies that, and maybe that's why Mark, in Mark chapter 12, in the parallel account, uh, says, includes both, right? He says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your might, with all your strength. And so maybe we can read it this way, that we must love God by intentionally seeking to, add, to have him in our thinking all the times. And sometimes we can find ourselves failing that one, right? We might think, oh, that's a little too heady. You know, that's for seminary students or for professors and a little too high there. No, 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 no. God is calling you to love him with all your mind, to employ all of your strength to think about him and to think about him rightly and precisely. And so you should always endeavor to say, God, what else? What else don't I know? What else should I know? You see, you know, when you have a long day, maybe you're working or whatever after a travel, you go back home late and you just sit on the couch, turn on the TV and just want to think about anything. You know, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? That's exactly the opposite of that. That, that your mind is always involved and intentional in thinking and in thinking about God more and more deeply and more personally. So the commandment here is clear, right? We must do what? Love God. But notice that it doesn't say you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. What does it say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Right? There's a seemingly useless repetition with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, meaning there is nothing of your life that can be excluded by this. He is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all, right? That's the standard. That's God's standard. God is requiring that you will love him with all of your strengths, with all of your mind, with all of your affections, just like he loved you when he sent Christ here on dessert, right? How is, that, how is it that he loved you? Sometimes it's good to think back at that. How is it God loved us? I mean, think about this. Before you were even a thing, right, God chose you. God decided to set his love upon you before the foundation of the world. He had decided to, to focus on you in a sense, right? He has chosen you to be part of his family before you were even a thing. He, cho- he predestined you to be his, He left heaven's glories, Christ Jesus, to come on this earth, to live a perfectly righteous life of a substitution for you and I. And he did all of that because he loved you, right? Partly, at least, because he loved you. He redeemed you from a life of sin and self-righteousness and pride. He rescued you from a debased mind. And friends, sometimes we take this so much for granted and we find ourselves ridiculing and mocking People out there dealing with all kinds of crazy stuff today, transgenderism, all of these ugly, wicked sins. But what's the difference between them and us? Is it that we understand things better? It's the love of God. Isn't that true? It's the grace of God in our lives. He has loved us to the end. And so as we think about this, Spurgeon wrote this, with such a hope as this, you must 
love him, must you not? Can your heart resist his charms? As we understand the love of God towards us, we must love him. It's a commandment, but it's an extreme requirement. I mean, it's a non-negotiable. You must love him. And we sang it before, Isaac Watts wrote this, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And I hope that we meant what we sang a few moments ago. And friends, with that same tenacity, I know we can't, We can't love God the way he loved us, but with that same tenacity, we should strive and sacrifice and have that same disposition. We should strive to love God with all we have and with all we are. So let me take you back to that first question, awkward question that I ask you. What do you think is the worst sin that you've ever committed? Have you ever loved God the way he deserves to be loved. This is the greatest commandment. Jesus says this. This is the great, verse 38, and foremost commandment. If there's one thing that you need to keep, it's this one. And by default, if you break this one, which is the greatest, you're committing the greatest sin. And so this might be overwhelming, right? And if you're a Christian, you might hear this and like, wow, how can I do that? But be reminded of the gospel. Because if you're a Christian, this text, this truth, should lead you straight to Christ with a heart of great appreciation for what he did. You see, he didn't just rescue you from lust, right? He didn't just rescue you from hate. Everything in your life was a transgression against him. Every single thing you've done, ever. The standard is much higher. And this text should lead you to Christ with a heart of thankfulness and, th- and gratefulness for this marvelous gospel that all of a sudden you can hide in him, right? All of a sudden, because you're in him, you're welcome. God welcomes you and can be pleased by you. But if you're not a Christian, if you haven't grabbed a hold of Christ, if you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in him, (laughs) I hope you see why we always speak that we cannot be saved by works, right? I hope you understand why is it that you cannot be saved by what you do. It's all of Christ. And you might think, well, how serious is this, right? Really? Is that what God requires of us? Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Do you love him? Do you love God? I'm not asking you if you come to church. I'm not asking you if you are familiar with the language or if you are dressing up with a suit and tie on Sunday. You go to Bible. That's not the question. Do you love God? Have you truly loved him? I'm not asking you if you know so and so or if you have a big role in the church. No, that's not the point. Do you love God, that is the standard. And if you have not loved him, please do not be much concerned about the next service. Do not leave this place without talking to someone. How is it that I can love God like that? How is it that I can grab a hold of Christ? How is it that I can be found in him? 
Do not leave this place before you find that, that certainty, that assurance. Do not leave this place before you set your love upon him and repent of your sins and trust in him. First John 4 says this, God is love, verse six, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God but the one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. But now, if you have loved him, right? If you are in Christ, if you have gone through this and you have understood how insufficient you are and how feeble you are, if you have understood that you cannot possibly reach this standard and you have gone to Christ out of desperation and he has saved you, if you have done all of that, then the second portion of this answer is for you. Not just we must love God, but number two, we must love people. We must love our neighbor. Look at what he says, verse 39. Jesus says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You must love your neighbor, how? As yourself. I mean, it's no surprise that we must love our neighbor, that we must love one another. First Peter 4.8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sin. Romans 13, 8, Paul writes, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Ephesians 5, 2, And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So we must love one another. But how is it that we must love one another? as yourself. Now, I don't really have to explain to you how is it that you love yourself, right? But perhaps we can ask some questions. Are you concerned about your neighbor's needs as you are concerned about yours? Are you concerned about your neighbor's reputation as much as you're concerned about your own? Are you prone to gossip? To point out the bad? Oh, but he did this. Oh, but she said this. Is that you? Are you concerned about their reputation before you're con- as, as much as you're concerned about yours? This might be a little heavier. Are you concerned about your neighbors and your friends' eternal state as much as you're concerned about yours? I mean, do you even know what your friends are going through? How to pray for them? How to carry their burdens? Because this is the standard. This is God's standard. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And again, that same word, love. No excuses. You must do it, period. And so now, as we approach our conclusions, we might finish a little earlier, but we must ask this question, right? I mean, I hope no one here really asked this question because you would be in bad companies, but who is my, what, neighbor? Right? How do I know who is my neighbor? And you might think, oh, well, Marco, but I, you know, who is my neighbor? Who is it? Everyone, right? You might think. Follow me to the Gospel of John, a few books later. Chapter 13. John chapter 13. Who is my neighbor? Here we are at the same, the same week, perhaps the day after, 
And John and Jesus is finding himself with the, with the apostles and he's in the upper room. And, and it, chapter 13, at the end of chapter 13, uh, it's a very, very specific, very beautiful text because here we have for the very first time Jesus with his own. Judas has left. If you see in verse 30, it says, so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night, right? Judas is gone. And so now for the very first time, because before this, even when he was with his disciples, Judas was still there, but now he's gone. And so Christ is with his disciples. He is with his beloved ones. Look how he called them. Verse 33, little children. He is with Christians now, right? He's with his own, the ones that are going to spend eternity with him. And he's telling them he's about to leave. And it is good that he's about to leave. And in light of that, he gives them some directions. Look at what he says in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And then he says what? Even as I have loved you. You see, it's true. Everyone is our neighbor. And we must love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And that is much. That is much. But Jesus here is telling us that we must love our brothers and sisters just as he loved us. And that is far more, far more than how much we love ourselves. And so this is the great commandment. This is the second commandment. Colossians chapter three says this, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So even as believers, we might look at this, we might look at the harshness of the law, and we should feel compelled to run to Christ. Ask him that he would be gracious. And if you feel overwhelmed, there's this one quote that I want to read to you that I hope will be encouraging to you and then will be done. A Puritan wrote this, your life is short, your duty is many, your assistance is great. And your reward? Sure. Therefore, faint not, hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing and heaven shall make amends for all. Let's pray. Father, we are always so weak as we compare ourselves to your commandments, to what's required, to the standard. And that is why, Lord, we come to you with humility. We come to you with a heart of humility and we beg, Lord, that you would grant us the grace to love you first, Thank you for bringing us to Christ and to leading us to him because in him we know that we are perfect because he was and he is perfect. But Lord, we pray that this text should lead us, Lord, with a greater sense 
of conscious excitement and intentionality to love you and to love one another as you have loved us, Lord. Oh, this place would be so beautiful if we'd all love in this way. And Father, we know that you're so gracious to us and so we trust in you and we rest in you and we thank you for this time. In Christ we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.